Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson. And this is Breaking the Code. A podcast series focused on debunking the myths about the discipline of behavioral science and arming our listeners with the information they need to make sense of behavioral science and to help them apply it to their work as marketers. So today's topic is the real consequences of bad social science. And this is sort of part two, was inspired from the topic that we discussed last time on nudges. And is it a nudge or a nag? And really, you know, what happens when we create these interventions that don't go the way that we want them to go or really have these unintended consequences. So Brad, I'm going to kick it over to you. What are all the things that could go wrong when interventions are not, you know, framed up, researched, executed the right way? Right. Great question. Thank you. So, you know, as we've been saying, there's really three ways that social science experiments, I guess, as we call them, or behavior change attempts, whether it's you know, this is a different discussion, but you and I talk sometimes, like even if it's just public policy that changes, in some ways it's a social science experiment. Like, let's see if by lowering the drinking age, we can reduce drunk driving accidents among teenagers. That was the idea behind it, right? So that was policy, but that was sort of an experiment. It worked. But there are always experiments that don't. And then there are always initiatives that really not only don't work, but do the opposite, right? So there's three ways you can look at things. One is, You try something, it doesn't do anything, right? That's just a waste of money and time. That's fine. The other is you try something and it does what you wanted it to do, but it turns out that that's not exactly what you wanted to happen because there's some secondary effect somewhere else that's catastrophic or or just not what you wanted, right? So, Mm -hmm. but the worst maybe from a design standpoint or social science standpoint is what's called a backfire, which is you try and change a behavior, you design a program that's supposed to modify a behavior in one direction and you literally have the opposite effect. It goes in the opposite direction of what you intended. And believe it. Yeah. Believe it or not, there's a lot of very large public health initiatives that have done that. So there are consequences to bad social science. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, that's obviously not great when you don't see an effect at all. It's, you know, to your point, it's a waste of money, but you know, significant who wants to waste money. Um, But I think when you, when you see an effect, that's literally like the opposite of what you want it to happen. That's problematic. So what's an example of that? So anyone my age, and you said you too, right? Like we'll remember DARE, Drug Awareness and Resistance Education. Yep, yep. Yeah, that didn't work. In fact, not only did it not work, it seems to have encouraged people to take more drugs. Now, I don't want to overstate that, that the data on that one are loose, right? But so here's the story. The DARE came out. It was uh, Nancy Reagan's brainchild with a couple other people. Give you a sense of time frame, right? Late 80s and uh, mid late 80s. And They wanted people to be aware of drugs so that they would then not take drugs. The awareness leading to resistance was the sort of logical fallacy here, because the way that they presented the data, people were fairly certain. There's 20 years of data on this. The way they presented the data was so absolute. And so everything will kill you, touch a joint, you'll die kind of stuff. Well, all you have to do is go to the average high school party and you're going to see somebody smoking a joint who's not dead the next day. So they kind of overstated their claims and the belief is by doing so, they, they destroyed their own credibility. In most scenarios, they had no impact whatsoever, no measurable impact on drug taking behavior among teens. But in the suburbs, they seem to have increased drug experimentation. So the data are pretty solid there that in at least one cohort, uh, you, you've got kids going through a public 
funded very large program that went on for two decades and more and uh and not only didn't it work but uh your kids exposure to it might have increased the chances that they'd puff on a joint that is a classic backfire and there's another part to that story which i think is more in your world which is this sort of cognitive bias of just you know the i don't know sunk costs or fallacy or something but like they just refused to believe that the, the data that it didn't work and so they just kept going Right. They refused to believe the data because they were observing a different reality. Right. So I think that that goes back to what you were saying, the way that we present information. Oh, sorry. I mean, the people who ran the program refused to believe the information. (laughs) No, the kids, I I don't, you know, there's theories. There's nobody's ever done a study as to why. All you can do is look at survey data. It's not perfect. But of course, as this very large public initiative, there was a lot of money spent as well studying it. And what's interesting, and it's probably more from a cognitive bias standpoint, is they just didn't want to believe that it didn't work until they finally did. Okay. All right. Got it. So, but then back to what I was saying around like so what the what went wrong it's it was the the information that was provided i mean it it wasn't that i mean yes it it's, it was inaccurate you you know not everything like the whole like if you do any drugs you'll die 100% like that's what's going to happen to you obviously there was a a trust issue there right like i'm sure yeah. kids when they were first exposed to that message they probably believed it to be true and then they saw a different reality as they were maybe getting older and going to parties and whatnot and then they're they they just didn't believe it anymore so i think that's fair and i also (laughs) think you know we're getting into education it seems that effective drug resistance education comes down to teaching people to make good choices in general Mm. uh, giving them the the wherewithal to have the ability to say no as opposed to just telling them say no but not telling them how to do it you know peer pressure is a big thing so i mean there's a lot that goes yeah. into this, right? I'm not saying that there was an ill-intentioned program. It was just a very poorly executed program. What was interesting is you would hope that your drug education and resistance uh, program would not encourage or right. result in more children taking drugs. You know, during the pandemic, the there was a lot of attempts to get people vaccinated, if you remember. And it wasn't that long ago. And there was one of them that when it started, I thought to myself, this is a terrible idea. Now, I'm calling out one of my good predictions. I will be honest, like everyone, I conveniently forget all of my bad predictions. I had loads of bad predictions (laughs) during COVID. But this one I remember distinctly talking to people about Mm -hmm. going, like, I think it's a very poor idea to pay people to get vaccinated. And here's what I why I thought so. And it turns out that this is maybe totally correct. Right. Which was you might not get that many extra people to get vaccinated. If it's a couple hundred bucks, you'll probably accelerate the process, but not by that much, you know, and and, and it was never a couple hundred bucks. It was things like scratch offs and stuff. There were a couple of reports of very large payments, but I don't, I don't think people actually got paid all that much. It was things like lottery tickets and, you know, something beneficial if you go and get your vaccination. Fine. I didn't think that was going to work. It turns out financial incentives, we've now studied it in retrospect, they didn't work among the hesitant. They didn't really accelerate anything. However, what they did do was turn off a lot of people. So if you were hesitant and believed uh, because of trust issues with the government or, you know, you thought Bill Gates was involved or something, and then all of a sudden they're starting to pay you. Then there was a lot of people who looked at that and said, now I know there's something wrong with this, because why else would they pay me for this? Mm-hmm. Now, look, I, you could say that those people were never going to get vaccinated anyway. And by those people, I mean, people who believe that there was a microchip in it may not have been 
uh, on the fence. They may have been absolutely resistant, right? But certainly the nature of hesitancy was increased in certain communities by the offer to pay people to get the vaccine. It was seen as proof that there was something uh, nefarious afoot. No one has ever paid me to take a drug before. And right. frankly, that was a predictable consequence, right? If all you had to do was read what people were concerned about and you would think, well, maybe we should put ourselves in their shoes and go trust is kind of lacking here. What would make them trust me more? Offering to pay them to take this thing would not make me right. trust them more, right? So yeah, I, yeah. I just think it was lazy. It was a desperation move. I totally get it. We didn't have the luxury of time. On the other hand, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but you could have seen this one coming, right? I think, anyway. Yeah, I don't think that we needed the luxury of time to know that could have had bad effects. I think you brought up a really good point, and I want to reiterate it. When we look to design interventions, it's really important to understand the emotional state of the consumer audience as to like why they maybe are not engaging in a behavior because to your right. point trust was a huge part trust was a huge barrier and in designing an intervention if you're trying to build trust that's really not the way to do it by like quote unquote bribing people we talk about emotion a lot intention belief all of that stuff is important when it comes to changing behavior, but I would say emotion drives so much of what we do. And if we could understand that a little bit better, we'd probably have more successful interventions, honestly. Yeah. Um, I'm just okay. wondering why you put air quotes around bribing on that. Well, one. yeah, like, to I, mean, me, I guess it was. It's but... actually just bribing, right? <laughs> right. right, 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 right. <laughs> sort of like telling your kid you'll buy them a book if they uh, brush their teeth or something. It's not, it, I mean, it's really no different than uh, just paying someone to do something they don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so those are like honestly really great examples of um, when it has like the opposite effect. Sometimes those get called backfire, but you had a couple good examples in mind that you wanted to talk about of well, yeah. the, the adjacent behaviors, right? Like, yes, you succeed in doing A, but you also yeah. succeed in doing B and B was terrible or something. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to, again, when we think about interventions, it's important to look at the whole person and the behavior, not in a silos, but in an ecosystem of behavior. So if we think about unintended consequences and like an adjacent behavior, there are so many examples. One that I like is the example of a, a study or a program that was run to decrease uh, water wastage in households. And this was run all across the country through various interventions, whether it be providing information, there was um, like rewards, like, you know, uh, discounts and that sort of a thing. Um, but what ended up happening is, I mean, it worked in the sense of people did consume um, less water and there was less wastage. But what ended up happening was people were then consuming more electricity, which was really odd. Like, how did that happen? That wasn't an issue before. But when they de when people decreased usage of one thing, it increased the usage of another. Right. And if you think about it, it totally makes sense because I feel like the way that our brains are wired, I mean, in that case specifically, it's like, okay, well, I'm doing, I'm making this one effort for this one behavior to really change and to minimize and whatever it may be. So you kind of like give yourself a pass for other behaviors because I feel like the way that the human brain works, it's kind of like, right. okay, well, I'm doing this one thing. And now I, I think it's called, it's like called like moral licensing or something where you kind of give yourself 
yourself the license to do a behavior that you weren't doing before because from a moral standpoint, you're kind of making up for it in another behavior. So oh, I, I don't right, know. Right, 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 right. Like, There's a lot to unpack there, but I think that that's, that's pretty interesting. Well, I think and, I kind of invoke that when somebody calls up and says, do you want to give to the policeman's sergeant benevolent association? I go, no, I give in other ways, which I do. Right. right? But I'm like, yep. I'm not just saying no, but I'm actually covering myself. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Or I, like when you work out, like, I mean, I know this kind of goes both ways, but if you're like, if you're exercising and you're whatever, being active, taking walks, prioritizing physical health, a lot of times you'll then maybe like let that suffer in, in other areas, whether that be like the food that you're consuming or um, right. maybe you take up another unhealthy habit that you really didn't have before because you're like, well, you know, at least I got the working out down and now I can, you know, so I don't know. I think you're yeah, saying look, well, are interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of unintended consequences, right? I think dieting, for example, right, um, exactly. tons of unintended consequences there and even just which diet, right? So I don't think maybe if you lose weight on Atkins, that's great. But if you do it the way a friend of mine did it, which is by eating like or keto, I think it was, but he was eating like a pound of bacon every other day. That's oh, not good for you either. Right. Right. But, but, you know, to your point, like, let's, let's, let's think about these interventions and let's, Let's put it in a medical framework, right? What does this mm-hmm. mean to our to the people around us? If you have a behavior change intervention, there are bound to be behaviors associated with it. And yeah. the the example that they often use when they start talking about unintended consequences is something like exercise. If we increase children's time on bicycles, that's a good thing. They're outdoors, they're biking, they're getting fit. We will increase the number of bicycle accidents that children have. And you just have to make a decision. Is that worth it or not? Mm-hmm. If you don't ever factor in that right-hand side of the equation, you just start doing things and they end up having a lot of unintended consequences. And I think that, the you know, for us in the medical space, we're very used to dealing with uh, off-target effects. They're called adverse events, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really think of the interventions that we create for our clients or, or you know, clients, whomever, right, uh, to, to change behaviors that they might actually have a secondary effect. The, the reason that it's problematic is, A, you're not fully designing what you're doing. You're just sort of shooting from the hip, like the vaccines mm-hmm. thing, like sometimes we do have time. But I think B is... When you have the the adverse events, the off-target effects in view, you can do something about it. So you can do things to minimize the harm of those bicycle accidents. You can make them wear helmets and put in uh, bike lanes. You know what I mean? Like there are yeah, things absolutely. you can do provided you've thought it through. If you just go like, well, let's pay people to get them vaccinated and then you walk away, you can end up doing a lot of damage. And, the, you know, the one example that you and I talked about in a corporate setting is the kind of thing where people show up and say, we're here with you on your journey and we're going to support you till the end of time and sign up for this copay card for this drug. You know, this happens and used to happen in multicultural marketing where they would go to a a city or a place they'd set up in a, a traditional, you know, air quotes, African-American location, like a church, right? And they would use that church as a screening event or something like that. And then they would brand it and they would sort of pat themselves on the back that they had done something tremendous. And then they wouldn't continue it as soon as the drug went off patent or as soon as the new marketing manager came in. And you might have achieved your primary goal of getting some phone numbers, getting some people screened, but your overall goal of like, what is the corporate reputation in the neighborhood has been shot Mm -hmm. because 
right? Like how many yeah. times do people show up and go like, we're here for you as long as there's money in it. And then they disappear. How stupid are people? Right. So mm-hmm. I think you have to be very careful about what you think of as the consequences of your actions when you design these things. What's an acceptable off target effect? How can we prepare for those effects? How can we mitigate them? That's exactly what oncologists do. And they give you platinum based chemotherapy and go, you might vomit. I'll give you this. You might lose your hair. Here's the number for a wig maker. Right. Like we do anticipate problems in healthcare and do something about them. Every single one of the cases that we've talked about, nobody had anticipated the problems, not an institutional way, certainly not in a way that made them able to address it in a timely fashion. Basically, DARE remained unchanged for for two decades. Then they kind of changed it and then they killed it. But I think the part that they changed essentially so transformed that it's not even DARE anymore. But for the longest time, they just wouldn't change it. And so, you know, eventually it dies, but not before it does some harm. So again, I think DARE more than anything made us all think that the government has no idea what it's doing when it comes to drug education, right? I think that was the meta <laughs> message. It was laughable, some of that stuff, especially as you got older. So Yeah, uh, everyone made fun of Dare. Yeah. And you remember the like, this is your this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. And it's uh, like yep. right, the scrambled egg thing. Who hasn't seen the t-shirt and this is your brain with a side of hash browns, right? Like they I mean they yeah. just they ask themselves to be made fun of. But that's what teenagers do. I think we could have seen that it wasn't working earlier. And done mm-hmm. something. we probably don't need to go down this road, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yes, I completely agree. And I think you you really summarized it nicely, like what it means to have a successful intervention. And and honestly, like we always say, like just doing a little bit of that background and that an upfront legwork into understanding the whole person, all of the behaviors, like really taking a step back and and digging deep. It'll really help ensure this the long-term success of interventions as well, as well as in the short term, is it even working at all? Thanks, Brad. That was awesome. Yeah, well, thanks. It's an important question. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's still probably more examples and more to talk about on like, you know, kind of born out of nudging, but talking about behavior change interventions as a whole. So having a podcast about bad social science is at job security. Right. So. There's so much <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, talk until to you next, next time. time. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm Sonika Garcia. I'm Brad Davidson. Yeah. Breaking the Code is a podcast by Havas Health and Youth Medical Anthropology Department. Created and produced by Brad Davidson, Sneaky Garcia. Content editing done by Catherine Rossi. Post-production audio editing done by Gabriel Allen Cummings. And inspiration by all of you. Thanks for listening and your continued support. If you enjoy these episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please leave a rating and subscribe. Until next time.